So today I have the pleasure to talk to Amarpal Sidhu, a software industry expert as well as a military historian. Amarpal has published two books focused on the Anglo sequels, the first being published in 2013 and the second in 2016, as well as a recent book published in July this year focusing on and titled The Siege of Delhi. Amarpal has also appeared and collaborated on history programs for several TV channels. So yeah, welcome to, to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, the, uh, on your show, Amar. One thing that we like to do kind of before we get into the, the main topic of discussion is just to find a little bit more out about yourself, kind of family background, how you ended up kind of where, just like many of us in diaspora, like where we are today. Um, and then also kind of why did you decide to go into history? And especially, I know that's a lot, and especially the Anglo sequels. I know that's a hell of a lot to kind of ask you in one go. Um, but but feel free to start to start wherever you, you feel um yeah i've um well i got into history pretty um pretty early actually um i uh, my parents came to this country um during the uh, well my father came here in uh, um 68 and uh, so i came here 69 uh when i was about six years old and um so we've been here quite a while uh, we used to live in gravesend actually so which is one of the sort of main centers of you know uh, sort of community if you like and um so so i've spent most of my life here in the uk um and um then we sort of moved uh, several places to coventry and nottingham and uh, but i did my studying here in uh, london and um i uh, uh, did um, uh, a degree in um, um, electronics, actually, uh, but a, a, a master's in software engineering. So I've, I've, I was in the um, sort of technology side of things for a long time. And um, I, uh, but my real sort of interest was in, um, was in history. Um, so I've always been into history, um, you know, ever since I was a, um, you know, kid um used to used to read about uh, uh, anything and everything really so uh, i was a, a bit of a general sort of history fan but uh, never much uh anything to do with um uh, seek history really at that stage and um but that sort of interest developed um probably about um you know maybe 15 20 years ago and um i started sort of gradually sort of looking more into um sikh history and punjabi history in general and uh, in fact a certain amount of indian history as well and um i always had this sort of idea of of, of writing myself but um you know being a uh, sort of a um a software engineer you know you're you never really find the time to to do your own thing you know it's uh, uh you know with a full-time job and um i got a at, at some stage i decided oh, i'm gonna try and give that up and just try and do a bit of writing full-time and uh, um and that's what happened actually maybe it was just a, a midlife crisis or or, or whatever but uh, i decided to um you know just try and uh, uh move into more writing by myself and uh, i found that um, you know there wasn't a lot of books on, you know, specifically Sikh history and, and specifically, you know, Anglo, Anglo Sikh wars. And, uh, and that I started getting quite interested in that. Um, 
Now, there, there are a lot of books, but a lot of them tend to be um, sort of 19th century, you know, first-hand accounts. And, uh, um, you know, you've got books like Goff and Innes, which, which again is 19th century, um, which are good, you know, they're, they're first, first-hand accounts. Um, but these wars were sort of, um, you know, I don't know about forgotten, but, you know, there wasn't so many, you know, modern sort of history books that were coming out on, 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 on these wars, um, you know, over the last 40, 50 years. And um, in fact, I suppose, you know, a lot of the uh, um, sort of British Raj period wars, uh, there's not so much on these days, you know, uh, I think, you know, schools have sort of moved away from sort of British empire history and, and what have you. And uh, I remember when I was, uh, uh, when I was at school, you know, things like, uh, you know, Henry VIII and whatever, that sort of thing, they've moved away from that. And um, they're doing sort of Russian Revolution and American uh, War of Independence and that sort of stuff, but they moved away from that. So, you know, this is sort of being more sort of pushed into the shade, you know, these sort of British Raj period histories. Um, so I decided to, um, you know, just, um, you know, bring out something uh, by myself. And uh, so that that resulted in, you know, first Anglo-Sikh war. Um, and then, you know, uh, a few years later, the second Anglo-Sikh war. Um, and in fact, uh, I've just brought out a book on uh, the siege of Delhi as well. So I'm, I'm quite heavily into the mutiny uh, at the moment as well, 1857 uh, uprisings. Um, so there's a there's a, a book coming out or I'm working on a book on uh, um, the, the the mutiny uh, in the Punjab and what was happening in the Punjab in 1857, which hasn't really been again. It, it's not really been covered very well um, by, um, um, you know, older history books or even modern history books, you know, they tend to concentrate on Delhi or uh, look now, you know, um, and that, that sort of uh, um, sort of uh, uh, stuff. Um, so Punjab's been sort of, um, you know, there's a whole sort of fresh story there that needs to be told. So that, that's what I'm working on at the moment. So yeah, it's all sort of almost, it's not, I wouldn't call it new ground, but it's, it's, it's ground that hasn't really been, um, you know, well covered in, in the past. Well, definitely. Just um, picking your brain on a couple of things. So, uh, like, actually, one thing that you mentioned about the um, what you were taught at school for history, um, I was doing my GCSE probably like fifteen years ago now, and it was the same. I was taught the exact the same modules that you just described. I was taught the same stuff. It was World War Two, Henry the Eighth, uh, Italian fascism. Nazi Germany, Russian Revolution, Vietnam, nothing, nothing, absolutely zero to do with any mention of the empire or kind of anything to do with any other history. So I think it's quite interesting that much hasn't really changed, although I think things are perhaps now starting to change. Um, then also when you were mentioning kind of the, um, the 19th century books that uh, pertain to the Anglo-Sikh wars, would it be fair to say that a lot of them are also written from a British perspective in that it's kind of, it's not necessarily looking um, at the Anglo-Sikh wars in its greater context. It's kind of just viewing it as perhaps another hurdle in the way of the empire at that point. Well, I, I think it varies. Um, I, I'm always fascinated by the first-hand accounts. So anyone who writes first-hand accounts, they, they tend to be very frank um and uh, a lot of the 
first-hand accounts tend to be quite fair as well. You know, um, I think it's I think it's that sort of respect that um, soldiers have for fellow fellow soldiers. You know, even if they're on the other side, um, you know, uh, they're both risking their lives. You know, the, the, there is this mutual respect. So. A lot of the first-hand accounts tend to be quite frank, and um, you know they they criticise their own uh, you know um, officers and, and and generals as well, um, and um, so you know that's almost the truest sort of account, if you like. And um, but you know historians when they when they write about these things, they they obviously have their own. Um, I wouldn't call it agenda, but they, it's their way of looking at things. You know their their perspective. So you tend to get, um, you know, um, uh, you tend to get a, a certain point of view, if you like, added in, um, you know, the, for instance, for the Anglo-Sikh wars that, you know, whether, was it the Sikhs who, 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 you know, initiated these wars? And that's what you'll get with a lot of European accounts. Um, and um, I suppose, you know, a lot of these books having been written, you know, during the, uh, um, you know, the British Raj period, uh, it's natural for them to 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 sort of um, to, to 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 show that point of view anyway. Um, you know, a lot of books tend to show the British almost sort of stumbling upon an empire, if you like. You know, um, you know uh, Bengal, and then you know having to fight the Marathas and uh, having to fight the Sikhs, and you know it's almost like it. They just fell upon, you know, they just stumbled upon an empire, which is far from the truth as well. So you get a sort of wide um, sort of variety of of of, of um, opinion and, and 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 the way books are written, you know, as you go through the ages, if you like. Yeah, no, no, thank you for that. Um, I guess then just diving into our first question pertaining to the, the Anglo Sikh wars, um, and I think you kind of touched upon it slightly by mentioning how there's this debate about whether the Sikhs initiated it or, or, or whether it was like the British who had done that. Now, one thing that I, it kind of comes up, um, and, it, and again, it, this is actually from reading a couple of first-hand accounts um, that I managed to get a hold of. One was by a, a, a Sergeant Pierman, I think. Um, so it was Pierman's memoirs. Um, and again, just as you were saying, like the very frank, the very honest, um, they criticised their um, superior officers. Um, I think the bit for me that stood out in that book was when um, Pierman uh, states that after one of the battles, he uh, scalped a sing that he found on the battlefield to make the plume for his helmet. And I thought for me, that just blew me out of the water because that's the type of information I don't think... Um, you're going to find anywhere else. You're only going to find that in a first-hand account. So Pierman's memoirs in another book, which I think is also called The Anglo-Sikh Wars by uh, H. Cook. It's a 1975 book. Um, they refer to the Anglo-Sikh Wars as simply just the sequels. That like, as in, so this term Anglo-Sikh War seems to have been kind of a more recent term that's been cr created to, to describe this. Um, like, what do you know about the change in reference? I think it was just a, a custom at that point, you know, uh, taking from the, you know, taken from the British perspective of, of labelling things according to, you know, the community that they were fighting um, or, or the nation that were fighting. So, you know, you'll get the Anglo-Sikh Wars being called the Sikh Wars or, um, you know, if they're fighting the Zulus, the Zulu Wars, 
um, you know, or, or, or other other um, places, you know, the Maratha Wars or, or whatever. Um, but I think the, you know, the, this this sort of custom of putting Anglo in front is a, is a more sort of modern um, um, sort of idea. And I think it's more a, a sort of um, a more neutral sort of term, if you like, and a more accurate term, you know, so it tells you it was a British fighting, um, British fighting the Sikhs. Um, but on its own, it's from a more British perspective, you know, just the Sikh wars doesn't really tell you um, who they were fighting against. So, um, yeah, but I, I, I don't read too much into it. <laughs> I think it's more, a, um, it's, uh, it's something that um, it's sort of changed over time, hasn't it? Uh, I think if you look at books, they uh, all the very old ones, you know, the 19th century ones will almost definitely call it just the Sikh Wars. Okay, okay. Well, it, the reason that I ask you this, and, and also the next question that's going to come up is because when I've spoken to some of the previous podcast um, guests, they've kind of picked apart the term um, and they're often referred to as the Sikh Wars or the Anglo-Sikh Wars, but it's also kind of pointing out that that perhaps doesn't fit neatly into those two categories so although the Sikh army obviously um consisted mainly of Sikhs 10 battalions out of 62 are Muslim um Hindu and Gurkha units as well 50 percent of the artillery were Muslim on top of that so obviously like I think just trying to point out that although we view it as an Anglo Sikh was the kind of the, the the armies themselves are comprised of various different groups and people even the british army um i was reading uh so the bengal army the largest of the three british presidencies in 1842 had a fifth muslims um and the hindus themselves were then categorized within other groups like rajputs brahmins and lower caste men so would it then be fair to say especially with kind of just a little bit that we've gone over that the use of anglo sikh is probably just referring to the political entities of the conflict rather than reflecting kind of the communities um for want of a better word that's right yeah i mean it's easier just to call it the you know the anglo sikh wars in fact it was the it was a lahore state uh you know founded by ranjit singh against the you know the empire of of the, the east india company you know if you really want to be um sort of accurate about it but it gets sort of uh, um Sort of simplified to you know uh, the Anglo Sikh wars, and uh, I think he made a good point there. You know the Sikhs were a minority, you know, in the Punjab, and uh, if you look at the you know the uh, the Sikh army, you know you had a huge sort of diversity of people, um, you know, employed in the army. You know everyone. You know uh, there was Gurkhas as well, um, and uh, there was even. Uh, uh, a fair number of um, sepoys from the from the the British force, British uh, East India Company's forces, who had decided that um, you know they could get a, um, I think the um, uh, you know the pay of the um, um, you know the uh, East India Company um, sepoys at that time was about six rupees, but they could get seven rupees, um, you know, fighting for the Sikh army. So you know that one rupee out of seven is out of six is is quite an appreciable sort of jump. And uh, so there's a fair number of sepoys that had actually, um, you know, um, left the East India Company's forces to, to join the Sikh army as well. So a lot of people don't realize that. Um, and I mentioned Gurkhas and, uh, you know, there was uh, Patans and uh, um, there was all sorts of, uh, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, various, um, you know, British 
officers had uh, not, not uh, European officers had uh, joined the forces as well. And you had uh, a certain number of, um, you know, low ranking um, uh, Europeans as well fighting, you know, on the ground. I was just about to ask you, actually, I was just about to ask about that, because obviously, um, but Jeet Singh's empire is kind of famously known for having a lot of ex-Napoleonic um, generals, um, especially people from France and, and a few from Germany and other places across Europe. I think there was also an American general maybe in, in amongst the mix, but kind of Europeans as just normal foot soldiers, I've never, like, I've not actually heard or come across them much or or as much as perhaps kind of people higher up in the army like what what could you kind of say about that was there a like i can't assume there were a lot of them um and again with these people who would kind of come over from the east india company or were they actually just kind of there in the pursuit of pay well there, there was um, a fair number of europeans who um uh, were just looking for employment you know and they didn't necessarily need to have been uh, you know, employed as 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 officers or as generals in European armies. They were simply in India, um, you know, adventurers, if you like, looking for employment. Um, so there were, I won't say there was a lot, but there were a certain number of, you know, um, um, Europeans who who'd actually joined the Sikh army, at, 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 you know, at the ground level, if you like. And uh, in fact, there was a few, um, um, you know, English chaps as well, um, you know, fighting, in um, at, at um, you know uh, at Sabrao, um, at uh, you know Frozshah, um, Aliwal as well, and uh, there's there's various sort of accounts of these guys who 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 were killed by the, you know the the British uh, British soldiers, you know, because they were seen as as traitors, if you like, you know, for having joined the uh, uh, the Sikh army. And um, but just going back to your previous point. Um, you know the same. You know this sort of very um, multinational army um, uh, that the Sikhs had was sort of mirrored, um, you know, by the British as well. So you you know you've got to remember that the the British were a, a very small number, uh, you know, in India. I think that the actual peak of you know Europeans or, or British being in India were I think it's about two hundred fifty thousand at, at the most, you know, and that includes civilians and, and military personnel. Um, so it wasn't a lot. So, you know, their army was sort of consisted, you know, roughly of about a third of Europeans and then two thirds of, of, of sepoys. So they had a very sort of, um, uh, sort of, uh, a sort of vast mixture of, of, of um, soldiers as well in their thing. So it was, um, it was, um, uh, it was a war of um, two empires, but, the, the people that were leading were actually at you know minorities within their own sort of uh, spheres if you like but that's that's always the case in india um you know if you look back in history you know the mughals were very few in number but they were very organized and you know they 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 um you know they conquered the country um very few in number uh and before that the afghans as well you had a lot of afghan dynasties you know right up to bengal um from punjab to bengal and uh uh, various other places, very small in number as well. So, you know, that tells you something about India. You know, if you're organized, you can, you know, really, um, uh, you know, really make it big time. Um, so, yeah, yeah, definitely the case for both sides. Yeah, no, no, thank you. Um, have you ever come across then, 
uh, accounts of any Sikh soldiers? Like I know you've mentioned uh, sepoys that were fighting for the British, but have you come across any Sikh soldiers who fought on the side of the British against Zinjit's empire? I can't say I have. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously the the um, the um, uh, sea Sutlej states, you know, um, um, states like Padiala and Jinnabha, they, they were actually um, allied with the British. Um, during the, the first Anglo-Sikh war, uh, they pretty much stayed neutral. Um, so they didn't help either the British, although they helped them, you know, in terms of allowing supplies through their, through their um, uh, territory, but they didn't actually help the British, you know, uh, substantially in terms of the fighting. Um, and um, it was the same again in the second Anglo-Sikh war. Um, you know, again, uh, you had these states helping the British. And of course you had the Lahore Darbar itself in the second Anglo-Sikh war, actually actively assisting the British uh, with their supplies, you know, against their own army. Um, so, um, so there was that, but in terms of them actually, you know, being on, on the battlefield uh, against the Sikh army, I don't think that was the case. There, there may have been a few. No, 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 thank you, thank you. Um, so just moving on then, there's a generalized view that the Sikh empire or the, the Sikh army had more soldiers, more guns, better supplies, and they lost in general over the, 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 the wars, um, mainly due to internal treachery. So I put out a post um, when we first discussed doing this podcast to ask everyone to send in their questions about um, the Anglo-Sikh wars. And the one that I'm sure you can imagine kept coming up was about just, we were betrayed, we were betrayed and that's why we lost. We Otherwise we would have won. Um, and kind of the reasons that, that were coming up were internal treachery, um, inability to pay soldiers, and a lack of leadership to manage um, an army that just seemed to become increasingly independent, um, kind of from the first Anglo-Sikh war onwards. Now, given kind of all of that, um, what do you think is actually kind of like, what is the decisive reason for why the British were able to win? So I haven't ever, I haven't spent much time doing any research or reading, but the little I did, it kind of seemed like on paper, the British were scared and fearful of getting into a full-blown war with the Sikh Empire. Um, and again, my, the, the main kind of reasons that kept coming up were blaming uh, Lal Singh and Tej Singh along kind of a number of other smaller issues uh, for the collapse of the, 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 the Sikh, um, Sikh empire. So what in your perspective then was the decisive thing either the British possessed or the Sikh army lacked that kind of tipped the balance in the way that kind of it panned out? Well, I mean, this is a, this is a huge question, actually. <laughs> we could probably, you know, Sort of discuss this for uh, you know a couple of hours you know this whole this whole business of you know what actually went wrong um but you, you know you touched on a number of issues there and 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 they're all correct you know uh what happened after ranjit singh um died um was that um in all honesty there was nobody there to fill his shoes 
I, I think that's the, that's a sort of key issue. Um, and, and that happens, you know, with a lot of people, you know, uh, a lot of these great leaders, uh, when they when they go, uh, you know, if you look at Alexander the Great or, you know, um, sort of Genghis Khan or whatever, you know, this this great chap suddenly disappears. Um, unless you're lucky, um, you know, the empire tends to fall apart, you know, um, you know, as with Alexander the Great, you just got to, the whole thing just went to pieces. And um, that was unfortunately the case with, you know, um, the, the Sikh empire as well. Um, nobody to fill his shoes. I don't think anybody was really sort of trained up to, to sort of um, a, a, as an heir, if you like, you know, in terms of, um, I mean, he had his son, Karik Singh, but he wasn't really, I think that was one of his weaknesses, Ranjit Singh's actually, he didn't, he didn't realise that he would be passing on. And uh, maybe in his last, you know, five, six years, 10 years, he should have sort of taken a slight back seat and allowed his, um, you know, grandson, Nani Singh, to, to sort of establish himself in power, if you like. Um, you know, there just wasn't a precedent in, in, in the Punjab for this. You know, this was a first Sikh empire uh, and he was the founder of the Sikh empire. So you didn't have that sort of um, um, sort of... Uh, historical sort of um, uh, foundation, you know, for, you know, the the state to pass from one hand to another, if you like. So, you know, there was a, a great danger there that uh, um, when he when he when he passed away, that it would just simply disintegrate. It didn't disintegrate straight away. Um, it, um, you know, it took another six, seven years. Um, people tend to you know, as you mentioned, the army uh, became increasingly stronger. And in one sense, you can't blame them because, you know, there was such weak sort of central control, if you like, you know, the whole Lahore Darbar had lost its um, um, uh, sort of um, inspirational figure, if you like, you know, they were, they were good at what they did, um, if they had a good leader, you know, without that good leader, whatever their talents were, um, it became much more fractious, much more, uh, um, uh, you know, um, it basically just fell to pieces really. Um, so in one sense, you can't blame the army, but then you can because they they ultimately, ultimately led to its fall. Um, a lot of people blame the, you know, the Dogras and, uh, you know, Lal Singh, Dej Singh, and um, again, that that is that is true that these people weren't particularly, you know, interested in um, handling the state. Um, but these were, I mean, I see them more as um, sort of mercenaries, if you like, you know, outsiders who came into to the state. And when a state's falling, you know, it's, you know, a mercenary will just look to, you know, his own. Um, his own um, future, if you like, you know, um, what's best for me, you know, they, they can actually see the state falling. And, uh, you know, it's everyone for himself at that stage. And, and that's what they were doing, you know, they, they realized that, uh, um, you know, the state was disintegrating. And um, let me take as much as I can out of this. And it wasn't just them, it was the other members of the Lahore Darbar as well, who were actually approaching the British at this stage. You know, um, not a lot of people know this, but Shir Singh, who was the, um, who took over after, you know, non Hal Singh, um, he actually approached the British as well. Um, he was 
um, you know, he was frightened of the Sikh army. He was frightened of being assassinated. He wanted their blessing, if you like, and their, you know, um, um, assistance, if you like, to stay in power. So very, very quickly after Ranjit Singh, you know, this this idea of um, um, of um, you know going to the British for help or offering them, you know, certain portions of of the Punjab for their for their um, you know for their backing you know, came into sort of uh, vogue, if you like. And um, lastly, um, I suppose it was the, the leadership, you know, when the, when the Anglo-Sikh wars broke out, you know, you unfortunately had these people like Lal Laj Singh and Dej Singh in power. And um, somebody should have decided that, you know, these, you know, their minds are not in it. You know, um, these are the wrong people to, to to lead the army um but you know um there was this you know this sort of um residue of uh, discipline if you like and you know it's very difficult to unseat somebody if you like um you know you either assassinate them in that particular you know scenario you know um uh, those years after and Singh, you either assassinate them or um or you just leave them in place, you know, um, you know, there's uh, people don't usually uh, resign and, you know, just uh, disappear. Um, so that was the case. So, you know, you had these chaps who had no intention of winning, really. Um, and uh, the Sikh army knew, you know, the, the ordinary Sikh soldier knew that their hearts weren't in it. Um, but the the problem was that even the, the the officers in the Sikh army were not given the um, were not given the uh, the respect and the uh, the obedience that they should have. So you know the whole sort of uh, um, whole sort of officer level right up to general uh, were you know um, not really with the common soldier, if you like. So you know it was a whole you know, comprehensive, you know, anything that could go wrong went wrong, you know, and this is a sort of classic case of a decline and fall of an empire, you know, with everything, you know, just just crumbling away in in, in one go. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I think um, for me, I was having a debate with a friend the other day, which was like, again, it was about the Anglo-Sikh wars, and I was saying if either, and it'd be interesting to see what, what your opinion is of this, which is I thought if either Akali Fullah Singh or Hari Singh Nalwa or someone of that stature was still alive around this period, I think things would have very much gone a different way. Because I think I think what's interesting is everyone very much um, centers the debate around Maharaj and Jeet Singh Ji not being present and therefore the state collapsing, which is obviously valid. But I also think it's interesting to look at some of the other individuals who were quite central in some of his expansion. So obviously, Agali Fula Singh dies, um, becomes Shaheed in the back. I can't remember where they're trying to conquer. I think it's Kashmir or somewhere. Um, and the account of how sad Maharaj Singh is is quite um, interesting. Uh, Hari Singh Lalu obviously being a warrior that even the British are uh, kind of almost um, commending in their newspapers. Um, but on the flip side, one thing that I found really interesting was a lot of the British accounts and the British reports in India make um, point of the fact that their soldiers are absolutely decimated by 
diseases and cholera and all sorts. So one thing that I find interesting, and perhaps you'd uh, kind of be able to share some information, like what it's like for um, Punjabi, so to speak, because it's almost like uh, one of the stats that I read was that when a, uh, what was it? Um, one regiment lost 90 men to cholera in one month. Another when leaving Ludhiana had 135 out of 700 men in hospital. So like we're talking quite significant numbers of British soldiers or, or soldiers fighting on the British side, just being incapacitated from disease and the weather. What is it like then for the Punjabis? Are they impacted as much as the British? And then kind of further on from that, how are the British still able to win with all, like it's almost like they've got everything, on paper it's almost as though everything possible to make the British seem weak and almost in, unable to, to, to conquer the Punjab is present. But actually when kind of the battles take place and everything happens, it seems far easier than, than it should have been. Like how much does kind of disease and the weather impact than the, the Sikh side of things? Or I guess they're just far more acclimatized. Yeah, um, there's not that many records actually on uh, you know, how the, the Sikh army fared uh, you know, in this respect. Uh, but certainly, you know, when cholera breaks out, then, you know, you know, all bets are off, you know, um, but, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the, you know, the odds being against the Sikhs or against the British, it, I think you've got to remember that, you know, during the first Anglo-Sikh war, um, you know, the Sikh army was effectively divided, you know, into, um, you know, almost four pieces, if you like. Um, so, you know, you had, uh, uh, an army under Lal Singh, um, an army under uh, Tej Singh, and then you also had um, uh, an army um, at, um, you know, uh, opposite uh, Ludhiana as well, um, uh, with, um, uh, I've forgotten his name now, but and there was also a lot of troops that stayed in the Punjab um, uh, to protect uh, the uh, Peshawar from, you know, any sort of invasion by the Afghans. And, uh, you know, so you had sort of almost, uh, you know, the, the Sikh army is essentially being split up into four separate pieces, you know. Um, and the idea, you know, for Lal Singh and Tej Singh was to sort of almost feed these pieces, you know, one by one to the British. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, at Lal Singh's army was actually broken up into a separate two pieces as well, you know, if you like. So, you know, when the first battle between the, the British and the Sikhs broke out at Mudki, um, you had a, a, a Sikh force there, you had a Sikh force at Feroz Shah, just five, six miles away. Uh, um, you had another Sikh force, Sikh army under Tej Singh at uh, Ferozpur, and then you had one at Filor, opposite Ludhiana. And, you know, there's all sorts of all numbers of troops in Punjab as well. Um, so it wasn't the whole of the Sikh army fighting against, you know, whatever the British could sort of muster up and, 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 and bring, you know, uh, it was a much, much more sort of weakened force. And like I said, that was a plan of, you know, Lyle Singh and Singh was to, to sort of divide up the, the Sikh army and sort of feed it piecemeal, if you like, to, to, to the British. And, and that's what it, that's what happened. Um, but despite that, it, you have to factor in that the, you know, the British, uh, um, uh, you know, commander in chief, uh, Gough, was actually almost overconfident, if you like. Um, he, he, 
he thought it'd be very easy going, you know, and they found at Mudki that it, it wasn't going to be easy going. Um, and at Feroz Shah, uh, he simply wasn't prepared um, for the kind of battle that, that actually occurred. And, uh, you know, anyone who's read, um, you know, anything on Feroz Shah will probably um, um, know that um, things were actually, uh, you know, as bad as they could be for the British at that point. Um, you know, they'd run out of ammunition. Um, you know, they hadn't brought any sort of food with them, hadn't brought any of their baggage with them, any supplies with them. You know, it's a depth of winter. They didn't have any, uh, uh, you know, uh, baggage, any, 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 anything to keep themselves warm, any coats, um, no water as well. Um, so it was a, was a very winnable situation for the Sikhs, you know, if, if, if they'd had the right to, commander at that point ready to um you know take the initiative um so yeah you're right you you know you mentioned uh, Harry Singh Nalua and 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 people of that ilk had unfortunately died by that time you know and and Sham Singh Atari Wala he had retired you know he was quite old um so you had a you know the the, the kind of um generals that you know Ranjit Singh had at his disposal just weren't there at that time anyway so um so it's a complicated situation you know people tend to simplify it and uh, um but if we if we'd had um um you know uh, sham singh and Dariwala actually leading the force at that stage um, at, at froz shah then things would have been very different no no thank you for that i, I did think so but it's always interesting to get um kind of a, a another opinion or a different perspective on things so no thank you for that um You've kind of answered this question, but I'm just going to kind of just go over it to, 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 to see if what I thought you would say is actually the truth. So I, I think from what I've gathered so far is that actually with the Anglo-Sikh Wars, there are a number of kind of smaller issues that all kind of help create the circumstance, which obviously then leads to its demise. Um, and much of this is down to the fact that when I say much of it, kind of a portion of the of the blame is kind of put towards the fact that we have commanders like Lard Singh, Dej Singh, etc., which almost due to the way they manage everything, kind of incapacitates the Sikh army to a certain degree. Obviously, like you said, splitting it up into all of these kind of smaller pieces. Um, so by doing that, does that also so far I can take like I've read in a number of reports that um the Sikh artillery was far, far superior and the Sikh guns were far superior to any that the British had. If that is the case, which perhaps it isn't, but just for just taking it for face value, are the kind of the... Because Lal Singh and Tej Singh are in command and they are taking it in the way that they deem fit, does that kind of ensure that although Sikhs have superior guns they don't really get to use them in the most effective way on paper there are so many different things that kind of make it seem as though the british were just not going to be able to win it but then when it comes to it although it is extremely close they pull it off um so although the the, the seat guns are used quite effectively and a lot of the british are shot down um it, it it's almost as though they were just weren't effective enough and i'm just trying to figure out like what 
what ensures that? Is that Lal Singh and Dej Singh, or is that something else? Um, you're right. Well, you're right to a certain point in the sense that um, the, the British, um, the, the, the Sikh guns at uh, Feroz Shah, uh, especially, were very superior to what the British had. Um, what actually happened was that, um, you know, we, we, we talked earlier about, you know, the, the, the British commander in chief being um, sort of overconfident, if you like. Um, the, the British force that actually fought at Mudgi and then at Shah simply didn't have um, sufficient heavy guns. They, they just hadn't brought, you know, um, you know, the big, big heavy siege guns with them. And uh, so they, their force was mainly made up of, um, you know, horse artillery and, and a certain number of heavier guns. Uh, whereas the Sikh army at Shah had um, a lot of heavier guns. Um, so it was a very one-sided contest, you know, at Shah. Um Having said that, um, what the what Lal Singh had done was actually dispersed a lot of the Sikh guns, you know, all across, um, you know, the Sikh camp. Um, so uh, I, I I don't know how sort of familiar you are with you know the Battle of Ferozshah, for instance. Um, the Sikh camp was made into a, an almost like a square, if you like, um, and the Sikh guns were sort of dispersed all around the sort of encampment, if you like, around the perimeter. And that's not really the best way of, you know, fighting a battle. Um, what it meant was that the British could choose which side that they wanted to, to attack on, which, you know, which side is the weakest, if you like. It was very much a defensive position. Um, normally, I mean, the best thing would, would have been to, to, to line up your force, you know, um, directly facing, uh, you know, the British, if you like, and then you can bring to bear all your heavy guns and all your guns to, 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 to fire. So the Sikh position wasn't really, um, you know, the sort of ideal position. Um, so, um, but having said that, you know, they, um, they were used very effectively. And in fact, uh, um, you know, by all accounts, um, they actually managed to knock out all the, uh, the British guns, um, you know, during the initial uh, cannonade, you know, um, uh, before the uh, you know the two sides came into um, you know hand-to-hand -hand combat, and um, so it was a, a very sort of winnable situation. Um, and certainly, you know, the next day, uh, the Sikh, um, you know, second day of uh, Feroz Shah battle, uh, you know, the Sikh soldiers knew that you know the British haven't got anything left now. Um, you know, uh, but you know that was a different um you know uh, that was a different day and lal singh decided to, to just pull back the, the sikh army um but yeah it was um you know that battle actually was the first and last time where you had you know uh, an appreciable number of sikh guns you know of the sikh army you know uh, being used if you like at Mudgi, you know, there was a much smaller force with a much smaller number of guns that was sent to take on the British. Um, and at Sabrao, you know, uh, again, you know, they, they were outgunned by the British as well. And uh, if you look at the second Anglo-Sikh war, a lot of the, you know, the Sikh guns had been confiscated by the British after the war. So, you know, that was, uh, that was, um, that was a totally different situation. Um, but, um, you know, at Feroz Shah, it was very much uh, a case of, you know, the Sikhs being, um, or the Sikh army being, 
having the advantage, very much the advantage. Yeah, no, no, thank you. Um, when I was reading through, um, I think it's Pierman's memoirs of um, the anglo sikh Wars. In it, there's, there's um, maps that lay out how the armies set up um, in some of the battles. Now, two that caught my attention were um, Alawal and Sobral, which showed that the Sikh army had their backs to the river. Now, I like I don't know too much about military strategy, but to me, it doesn't make sense having your back against something that someone could push you into, um, especially when the entire idea is you need to make up ground. So why, like, why was the Sikh army set up like that? Was there actually some type of strategy behind it that made sense and I just don't understand it? Or is this just another case of being set up to fail almost? Yeah. I mean, one of the things you never do, you know, in, in a battle is fight with, with, you know, with the with the river or or the sea behind your back because you know you just got no space to maneuver, you know, and 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 if you get pushed back or, you know, you have some sort of reverse on, you know, one of your flanks or whatever, um, there's nothing you can do, you know, you you can't retreat back and and counterattack. You just do not have the space there to to do that. So. Um, so no, no one in their right sense would fight, you know, uh, in those sort of positions. Um, unfortunately, at Aliwal, um, you had a, a chap called Ranjod Singh Majitia, who was, um, uh, you know, a very young, very young chap. And I'm not sure how he quite made, you know, commander at, at that point. Uh, he didn't have much uh, military experience at all. Uh, I think he was in his sort of early 20s. So, um, you know, how he came into that position, I'm not sure. So um, I suppose it's the same as with, you know, Lal Singh and Tej Singh. No, neither of those guys had much of uh, a military experience at all as well. Uh, you know, Lal Singh certainly wasn't even in the army. Um, so, you know, you, you just do not fight with the river at your back. Um, what happened at Philip uh, at um, Aliwal was that, um, as with all these battles, you know, Ranjod Singh did not show any initiative. You know, he simply crossed the river into what was technically uh, British territory, and he simply just sat there. You know, um, he could have done a number of things. He could have attacked Ludhiana, uh, which was, you know, there was a, um, a which is British controlled, and there was a certain small garrison there. He could have attacked. Uh, the British supply convoys, you know, coming from Delhi uh, to to reinforce the, the, the main British army that was heading towards Sabrao. Um, and uh, there were a number of other smaller British garrisons, you know, nearby as well, uh, which he could have attacked. But he did none of that. He simply crossed the river and he just simply sat there next to the river, you know, uh, and made camp waiting for the British to come to him and uh, which they did eventually after they managed to you know uh, get together a lot of these um, um, smaller garrisons and uh, you had a um, you know the British general Harry Smith came up with a force from from uh, um, you know uh, Feroz Shah uh, himself um, and uh, you know uh, the the British British general uh, couldn't have you know wanted for a better position really um you know uh, once they did push the 
the Sikh army back, which was largely made up of irregulars, you know, at Aliwal. Um, you know, it was a much easier battle for the British. Um, once a lot of these irregulars were, were, were sort of dispersed, um, that put the few, you know, Sikh regulars that were still fighting in a, in a, in a very dangerous position. position. Um, and um, they were eventually, you know, they eventually had to retreat to the river and cross back under heavy fire. And uh, fortunately for a lot of these soldiers, they did manage to make it back to the, to, to, to the right bank. Um, but you know there was a lot of lot of um, lot of casualties and uh, a lot of soldiers you know Sikh soldiers died you know trying to cross back. Um, it's it's not something that even a you know an amateur sort of um, um, sort of general would do really. Um, but it it shows the kind of poverty of of leadership that the that you know the Sikh army had at that time. And the same goes for uh, Sabrao as well. You know um, what uh, um, Lal Singh and Tej Singh did was they um, they made a, an encampment on 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 the left bank, um, with just half the army, um, you know, situated on the left bank, and the other half of the the Sikh army still based on the right bank. You know, in other words, they would not take part in the fighting. So you only had half the Sikh army facing the British army. And uh, obviously um, uh, what happened was that the, the British pushed this, this force back. And uh, again, you had the same uh, situation that you had with Ali Wal, you know, a lot of Sikh troops trying to cross back, um, you know, over to the right bank and, uh, you know, just being shot, shot in the river. Um, uh, you know, all you had was a as a, a bridge of boats that was used to to to, to you know to bring um, um, supplies to the left bank, um, and that was broken by Lal Singh and Dej Singh as well. Um, so it was a massacre essentially. Um, but both these massacres could have been avoided. Um, you know, had a had a had a had a proper general been in command <laughs> of, uh, of the forces. No, no. Talking about generals then, um, and I know we, we discussed um, or we touched upon some of the European generals that were employed in the army um, at the time. Like, what what role do they play? Like, I know quite a lot of them have left um, or are starting to leave once Rajit Singhji passes away. Um, equally, there are a few that stay behind. Um, like what? What are their roles and everything? Considering Lal Singh, Dej Singh seem to be kind of at the helm of everything. Um, where are all the European generals that had kind of um, built their reputations up until that point? Well, a lot of them, you know, as you say, had had gone back to Europe at this point. Um, you know, from eighteen thirty nine to end of eighteen forty five. You know, that's six years. Uh, you know, there was a huge amount of turmoil and what have you in the Punjab and uh, most of them really just up sticks and you know went back you know with the uh, um, you know the, the, that all made their fortunes you know there wasn't any point in staying in the Punjab at this point you know they could see it disintegrating and um, secondly a lot of the Sikh troops um, didn't want to take orders from them now anyway um, you know during Ranjit Singh's period you know these these Europeans had been sort of almost uh, imposed on 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 you know it, on the uh, you know the Sikh regiments 
And they accepted that. But in this sort of confused situation, you know, um, you know, they um, there was a certain amount of rebellion against, you know, any sort of Gora, you know, uh, Gora's leading them, if you like, you know. Um, so it was a difficult situation for them. A lot of them left. Um, there was a few still left, actually, uh, during the, the first Anglo-Sikh war. Um, in fact, there was um, a chap called Hoban who was helping, um, you know, arrange the defences at, at Sabrao. Um, but overall, um, they had a negligible influence, you know, at that stage. Um, and, and they, you know, all credit to them, um, you know, they realised that, you know, it's best to get out now <laughs> rather than, um, you know, stick around and where you're not wanted. Yeah. Oh, fair. Two questions that got sent in by um, just like people in the community when I posted about this conversation um, and they kind of connect together. So um, one of them was what were the type of weapons being used by the Sikh army? And then the second one was considering the quality of, um, say, for argument's sake, the guns produced by the Sikh empire. What was the level of industrialization like compared to other nations? Well, I think the, the weapons were essentially the same. Um, you know, the, the British used uh, uh, what was called the Brown Bess musket, which was basically adopted by the Sikh army as well. Um, so in terms of muskets, it was, you know, pretty much the same sort of uh, um, sort of weapon. Um, the, the Sikh army tended to use, you know, talwars, you know, rather than bayonets. Um, I'm not quite sure why that's the case, um, but I think people were, you know, I think the soldiers were just used to, you know, using the heavy talwar, you know, um, um you know in close quarters fighting rather than the rather than the bayonet which was the you know the the sort of british um um staple if you like and um in um you know there's there's a lot of accounts of sikh soldiers you know in in close quarters fighting with with british guys with their bayonets and uh you know it's quite a it's quite an interesting contest you know the if the british uh, stay in formation uh you just can't get close you know because they've got that you know um advantage of of, of uh, um of um uh, reach if you like with the bayonet you know uh but once the once their formation's broken and it's it's close quarters fighting then you know with the delaware you've got you've got an advantage there as well and uh so you know it's an interesting um it's an interesting um sort of uh, um comparison really it reminds me of the of the uh, the Romans and the um, and the um, uh, and the Greeks, you know, when the when the Romans attacked the Greek uh, uh, sort of uh, Greek uh, Greece, um, you know, you had the the Greek um, phalanxes against you know the Roman legions who were who were um, you know equipped with swords, uh, whereas the uh, you know the Greeks were um, you know used the used uh, the spears, and uh, so you know in certain situations you've got. Uh, the Greeks having the advantage, but once once it comes to close quarters fighting, then you know the, the sword is is superior. Um, so yeah, that that was that was the difference there. Um, in terms of um, artillery, um, the the Sikh army had, uh, or rather the the Ranjit Singh had actually uh, you know um, managed to obtain 
you know, various um, artillery pieces, you know, from the British and from from Europe as well, and and it actually uh, improved on their design as well. Um, so you know, the rates of firepower of, of, of a seat gun and the way they, you know, they, they fired the gun, uh, you know, the technique and the the the, um, um, the procedure they went to through was faster than what the the British could do. So I think the I think the for every um you know three uh um uh, for every three uh you know uh shots that the the sea army could fire i think the, the british guns could fire too um you know so it was that sort of ratio so they had they had sort of um um you know a higher rate of firepower if you like um so yeah there was a, a certain um um you know sort of appreciable degree of improvement of, of these weapons um, in, in Punjab. And um, so that was the interesting thing. Uh, regarding industrialization, I, I, I don't think, you know, Ranjit Singh really had that time to, to actually implement any sort of large industrialization, you know. Um, and by the sort of 30s, 1830s he he was he was getting on a bit as well so he'd sort of uh lost his initial sort of um dynamism anyway um i know he wanted to you know i was reading an account uh, you know a few months ago about um um him wanting to um have um um steamships you know running up and down the uh, you know the rivers in 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 punjab um, so he actually had um, some of these European um, officers bringing in technology uh, regarding, you know, steamships that he wanted to, to, to introduce. Um, so there was things like that, but I, I think that came too late. And obviously after he died, you know, there just wasn't any interest left at all. You know, the, uh, you know, there's, uh, you had all the infighting, you know, nobody, <laughs> nobody's uh, interested in, in that sort of thing uh, at all as well. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think if he'd uh, survived another sort of 15, 20 years, then we, we may have seen, you know, certainly he liked to copy uh, and, you know, if he can better, you know, the kind of technology that the, uh, you know, the British had. So things like the telegraph, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the railways uh, were being introduced, you know, in, in, into India, he would have introduced those, but that, that never came into, uh, you know, never, never, never materialized. No, definitely. Um, I know we spoke, you briefly mentioned earlier about the cis Sutlej states and kind of how they played somewhat of a neutral role during, um, during the wars. Um, one particular question that got sent in was what was the role of the Fulkia missile and the Royal House of Patiala in particular? I think you've got to remember that they were sort of semi-independent states, or they were independent till they, you know, um, accepted British, you know, um, 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 you know, British authority, if you like. Um, and um, so they were never really aligned with, you know, Ranjit Singh. In fact, they, they, they sort of feared him, you know, because they knew that he wanted to, you know, unify the, the whole Sikh Qom, you know. Um, but looking at it from their point of view, you know, they would have lost their independence. So, you know, from their point of view, it was it was worth, you know, allying themselves with the British, 
Um, and that's what they did, you know. Um, and, you know, I suppose that's that's just the natural way of things, really. Um, you know, Ranjit Singh managed to unify the missiles, you know, north of the Satluj. Um, but, you know, if you'd asked these missiles when he, when he was trying to consolidate, you know, power over Punjab himself, they, they would have, you know, they were fighting against him as well. Well, I guess it'd be fair to say that he conquered them rather than unified them, because I think it then, like, I think the, the, the first terms makes it seem like they agreed to be part of the new empire he formed, where obviously he was, I think just as much as the British were conquering India, he was conquering Punjab like to be fair um and obviously engulfed all of these missiles um w within obviously his territory so no that that that's absolutely fair um would it then be fair to say that most of these sea sutlej states like they they when i say they never had formal relations with the sikh empire as in like they had always been independent so there was never like um there was never say like a treaty or there was never kind of allyship between these different sub-states and the Sikh empire from the get-go or was it almost when the British arrived things changed well I think that um I think uh, the impression I get with Ranjit Singh is that you know he almost sort of gave up trying to to to, to sort of uh um, gain control of these states, you know, after he made the treaty with the British, you know, Treaty of Amritsar, which limited him to the Punjab, uh, to the, you know, the north of the Satluj River. Um, so, you know, there were there, there were good relations, but, you know, these these states had, had effectively given their independence away, you know, uh, to, 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 you know, to be underneath the British. And uh, that, that gave them safety. Um, and I suppose they, um, it's difficult to say what they really, you know, the, the, the rulers of these states really, um, where their allegiance really lay, if you like. Um, I mean, certainly, when, you know, when war broke out, um, if they had not helped the British, um, the British could not have, you know, uh, managed to to sort of uh, uh, approach the Sutlej River. You know, um, simply because their supply lines would have been too long. You know, they were they were dependent on uh, you know Badala and Naba um, uh, for their convoys uh, from Delhi uh, to come towards um, uh, you know Froz Shah and Sabrao. Um, so it would have been pretty much impossible for them to. To, to, to actually um, fight these battles at, uh, where they were fought. Um, and similarly with um, the Second Anglo-Sikh War, you know, most of the battles in the Second Anglo-Sikh War were actually fought, you know, much further west. Um, and again, the British had to bring a lot of their supplies from Delhi and, and Mirat, you know, those sort of places. Um, very long supply lines. And again, these, these passed through Patiala, and uh, through Lahore and right up to, you know, uh, the Jhelum. Um, so, you know, these states, people tend to sort of, you know, dismiss them, but they were actually quite important in, in, in their own way in, in sort of aiding a, a British victory. 
Um, it's um, something that people don't really realize, you know, when, when they, when they you know, read up about the Anglo-Sikh wars, you know, the fact that a lot of uh, places stayed neutral, you know, um, and again, you know, you know, you had the Dogra brothers, you know, uh, Glob Singh, Dog, uh, Glob Singh in, uh, you know, ruling Kashmir, you stayed neutral, you know, uh, you had various other states as well, um, uh, Muslim states staying neutral as well. So it's a, it's a very complex situation, you know, it's not just simply, um, you know, um, a sort of Anglo-Sikh conflict, if you like. Would it be fair then to say that a lot of these individuals who stayed neutral, so far you can say um, Glob Singh, is it because they've kind of tallied up the fact that if they were to oppose the British, they're just going to get decimated? And therefore, it's kind of a survival instinct of actually, if I befriend the kind of the enemy of my enemy, I'm fine. Um, or is there more to it? So for argument's sake, like, if in a hypothetical situation, I don't know, uh, the, gin, the, the states that they're taking um, their supply lines through turn around and told the British actually no when like we're not going to let you do that that obviously would have made things a lot harder and had hypothetically Gulab Singh Dorgadar said actually I'll oppose the British alongside you guys like would it have made and I, I guess this is one of those what if questions and technically the answer could be anything but um, like would if the events had been different and that like for argument's sake those states hadn't allied with the british or certain individuals hadn't remained neutral would that have actually impacted things in your opinion or would it have not made much of a kind of difference i think it would have made a big difference actually um you know we've just talked about the sea Sutherland states you know if they if they'd actually worked with the you know the sikh empire uh certainly things have been things would have been very difficult for the for the british you know to to, to sort of advance towards the punjab it was a very close run thing for oz shah you know um anything could have tipped it either way you know um you know the uh, lal singh had, had, had pulled the sikh forces back but if if you know glob singh had his his army there if dead singh had come across uh you know or if any of the other sort of neutral parties if you like you know there was there was talk about the um you know the uh, the gurkhas you know uh, the nepalese invading um during the uh, you know the first and second anglo-sikh wars as well take advantage of the you know the conflict that's going on for for their own benefit you know if they had invaded as well so again that would have changed the uh, the equation quite a bit as well so you know it's important to remember these were very close run things you know there was two battles that were very close Feroz Shah and Chilionwala you know the other ones were pretty much easy uh, British victories for one reason or another but in these two sort of uh, um, you know very climactic battles uh, anything could have pushed it either way so yeah yeah it, it, it's <laughs> uh, it would have been interesting if if these guys and uh, these neutral parties if you like had involved themselves in one way or another okay no no thank you um just then moving into kind of the first anglo sikh war as just the central focus of uh discussion so a lot of the british accounts portray the sikhs as the aggressors um concentrating their forces at locations such as near the sutlej um and it's 
kind of interesting for me because my family bend is literally just north of the Sutledge. Um, it's about, I don't know, like a 10 minute drive from Forlorn. Um, just coming back to the question. Um, so they kind of blame the Sikhs and they say they were the aggressors. They say that these guys are the ones kind of concentrating their forces. Um, they do admit that the British forces are also doubling at places like Lodiana and Ambala under um, Henry Harding, even though they've apparently been given instructions not to engage in conflict with the Sikhs. So I guess this is again one of those eternal questions which historians will continue probably to debate, which is what are the main reasons for that first Anglo-Sikh war breaking out? Like what, what triggers it? Like, and again, I'm, I, like I understand that actually it's probably not just one event. There's probably numerous kind of dominoes that lead to the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak. But in your estimation, what are perhaps like the most important reasons for that initial spark to the conflict? Yeah, it it was quite a, a strange sort of start to the to, to the war, uh, Amar. Um, there was a feeling amongst the, you know, the um, Sikh soldiers that they, that, you know, they wanted to give it a go against the British, you know, um, and this had been a, a feeling there, um, you know, for, for decades, you know, um, you know, once once Ranjit Singh had established himself, um, um, you know, the, the obvious enemy was the British. Um, so although there was friendly relations between, you know, the Sikhs and the British, um, you know, there there was always this sort of um, you know how would we um you know um how would we uh, uh, fare against them sort of thing and, and you know we can beat them you know uh, so there was this huge confidence there um but during rajit singh's time obviously you know there was peace so you know this situation never came into being after his death um uh, you know people like lal singh Tej singh knew that they had to get you know the Sikh army away out of politics and 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 the the obvious solution was just to Sort of pitched them against the British, um, so that was the that was their um, sort of that was their motivation for the war. Um, now, having said that, the what they did do was they they ordered the Sikh army across the Sutlej River. Um, now, the, the the treaty that the, the Sikh um, that Ranjit Singh had made with uh, the British was that uh, although he had lands. Uh, south of the Sutlej River, he, he, the Sikh army would never cross into these the, these territories. So these were uh, Ranjit Singh's territories, but you know no military force was allowed there. Um, now what they what Lal Singh did was he he ordered uh, the Sikh army across the Sutlej River. So technically, you know it was a Sikh army that broke the you know the, this agreement. But having said that, they were still on, you know, Sikh territory. You know, they were still on Lahore territory. Um, they had not crossed into British territory at all. Um, so, you know, you have this sort of sort of grey area about, uh, you know, whether, um, you know, they'd actually... Um, uh, and, there, and there wasn't any declaration of war either. <laughs> this was a strange thing, you know. Um, Lal Singh, you know, he didn't want to... Um, you know, he was obviously allied with the British. He doesn't want to declare war, you know, um, you know, because that compromises his own position. You know, he wanted to keep his position after the war and uh, um, the same with Dej Singh. So there was no declaration of war. 
uh, the Sikh army crossed and it just just basically sat there, you know, uh, at Frozpur and uh, at uh, Frozshal. Um, so, you know, is that really um, an invasion of, of British territory? No, no, it wasn't technically. Uh, but then again, they did break this, you know, treaty that a Sikh military force will never cross cross the river as well. So, you know, you have this sort of gray area, you know, um, and certainly none of the British um, garrisons, you know, along this, you know, the border with the Sikh empire uh, were attacked as well. You know, uh, you know, the, the British had a large force at, um, you know, Frozburg, which could have been attacked. In fact, Tej Singh just kept his, uh, um, army, um, you know, a couple of miles away from, you know, the British cantonments. You know why? You know, if you if you if you if you if you're going for war, then you attack the, you know, you would attack this the, the, this force. And similarly, you know, at Ludhiana, uh, there was a couple of other, um, you know, uh, fortified places that the British had small garrisons, and you know, strung out Jagram, I think they they had, and there was a couple of other um, uh, places as well, which could have been mopped up by the Sikh army. Um, you know, before the main British force came up, they didn't do that as well. So, you know, there was no hostility, you know, um, at that point. Uh, but what um, what triggered, thing off, uh, triggered things off was the, um, uh, you know, the British Governor General, um, you know, declaring war and, and saying, look, you know, you shouldn't have crossed this river. Uh, that's it, you know, we're coming. And they were ready for war anyway. You know, they could see, uh, you know, the country disintegrating, uh, and they could guess that, you know, uh, somebody like Lal Singh, um, you know, uh, as the, um, uh, you know, the Lahore Prime Minister would send the, the Sikh army across just, just, to, just to get them all out of his hair, if you like. Um, so they were ready for war anyway. So, it, you know, the whole thing is, a, you know, you could write a book on, <laughs> you know, all this sort of, um, uh, you know, odds and ends and, you know, microaggressions and, uh, um other things, you know, the British actually bought um, a bridge of boats up as well, um, you know, so they were ready for an invasion of Punjab as well. Um, they also um, uh, arranged a, a number of supply depots from, from Delhi as well. So they were actually ready for war as well. So, you know, you can, you can make of that what you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, thank you for that. That was, uh, that was really good. Um, just then kind of moving into the battles of the first Anglo-Sikh war. So when I was doing a little bit of background research, the five main battles that um, popped up were Mudki, Fadur Shah, uh, Badawal, Aliwal, and Sobran. However, I also came across a few other, what were referred to almost as like minor, minor skirmishes. Um, two of them apparently took place before Mudki, which uh, were Wadani Fort and Falor Fort. The Falor bit is interesting because that's also the, that fort is near um, near my family bend, um, and there was also reportedly a battle after Sobran, which is the Battle of Gangra. How like what are these three skirmishes or battles, and how do they fit into the kind of the wider context of things? Because if I'm honest, I've never actually come across them before until I had to do a little bit of research for this. So, like, are they important? what is going on at these events like how do they fit into the wider context yeah well no they're not really battles uh, uh, at all um uh, Vadani was uh, a place um you know it's a village obviously um 
along the way, uh, which fell in the the path of the you know the advancing British, um, and there actually used to be a, a small fort there, um, which um, which was occupied by Sikh soldiers. So this was actual um, you know Lahore territory. Um, you know Rodney was in um, when the British force came up. Um, you know the the force inside evacuated. You know they simply weren't you know. Um, numerically sufficient they didn't have any guns either so it was literally just an outpost uh, they they evacuated that fort and uh, the british took it over and and then you know kept advancing towards mudgi so there wasn't really a battle there so i'm not quite sure about that one um for you know obviously you've got you know lahore uh, ranjit singh's uh, you know large fortress there um and that was actually occupied by the british um after the the first anglo sikh war um and um it used to be Ranjit, one of Ranjit Singh's treasuries as well um and in fact it was it was a it was a fort that the British used um you know to to, to, to guard the Sutlej River along with a, a garrison um across the river at Ludhiana as well so it was very important for them as well but there wasn't any sort of conflict there um or rather there was during the the mutiny actually but that's that's a different subject but Kangra um, now, Kangra is is a fortress in the you know in Kangra, obviously in you know in the foothills of the the Himalayas, and this was a fortress that um, after the first Anglo-Sikh War, the treaty was made that the the entire you know Jalandhar you know uh, area would pass to the British. So you know that was annexed by them, and uh, and that obviously included Kangra as well. You know, being in the uh, in the east there. Um, now the the commander of the Kangra fortress, um, you know, he was a bit of a nationalist, and uh, he didn't want to hand it over. Um, um, and it was it was actually quite a powerful fortress. I don't know if you, you've been to, to 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 this fortress, but it's it's built um, in a really strategic location. You know, it's very difficult to uh, very difficult to uh, to conquer. You know, not very difficult to 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 to. to um, um, to, to, to grab hold of this fortress and um, he decided look you know I, I don't want to hand it over you know and he was told by the Lahore Darbar look you know we've made this treaty with the British you've got to hand it over but he didn't want to so the British had to actually haul a lot of heavy guns you know towards uh, Kangra uh, to try and you know uh, sort of uh, you know um, gain, gain the, uh, the fortress and um, so they actually managed to drag a lot of these guns up there now, whether they could have got it or not, I'm not sure, you know, because it is a very difficult place to attack, you know, even with, you know, big siege guns, um, you know, the way it's built, you know, um, and there's only one access to it, you know, if you like, and a very steep, you know, sort of upward um, um, sort of path to, to the fortress itself. Um, so even with guns, it would have been very difficult to, to, to actually, um, um, you know, to, 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 um, to win there. Uh, the commander, when he saw, you know, the British force arrive, um, he decided to give up. You know, he didn't have enough of a garrison anyway. Uh, so once the British made a, a, you know, a big show of force in front of him, um, he made a, he made a um, you know, um, he sort of uh, started negotiations effectively. Uh, you know, we want pensions, we want this, we want that. Um, if you give us those, you know, all right, we'll, we'll give it to you. So he sort of gave up. I think he was hoping that 
a lot of the other smaller garrisons, you know, along along all the foothills and other places would join him, you know. So, you know, the, he wanted to be the sort of inspiration for a rebellion, but uh, it never quite took off. And certainly he didn't, he didn't have the force to, to do anything about, you know, on his own as well. So anyway, he gave up. So, um, so there wasn't a battle there as well, but it, it was a key um, issue after the, um, the first war, certainly. No, no, thank you for clearing that up because I was a bit curious as to like what these events were and how they fitted into obviously the wider context. So uh, no, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, just moving into then the interwar period, which is probably the bit that I find most interesting. So what, like what is actually happening post Sobrao, obviously kind of the, the British in, the, in, in their perspective, and to be fair, they've won um, kind of uh, quote unquote. What then happens kind of between that and then the outbreak of the second Anglo-Sikh war? And in and amongst this, what role, if any, does Rani Jindal play in what happens? Um, there's obviously loads of debate about whether she um, had kind of any part to play in the demise of the um, army or not and kind of she's sometimes seen as others as this um, kind of strong independent leader who kind of took a stance against the British although then people claim that there's correspondence between her and the British and then it gets a lot murkier and kind of the further you go down the rabbit hole the more confusing it gets so what is going on in this period and what role does she play um, within this kind of context? Yeah, I mean, it, it, as you say, it's a, it's a very interesting period. Um, Maharani Jiddan, she, um, she was pretty much like Lal Singh at the Singh, actually, um, you know, before the First, war, first war. Um, she was sort of sick and tired of the, you know, the Sikh army being, you know, sort of, uh, intruding into uh, you know political affairs and um, you know uh, as you may know her her brother was actually assassinated by by the army as well so she had very little sympathy there um, so she was actually you know um, hoping you know like Lal Singh and Tej Singh uh, that the British would sort of take over the Punjab you know bring it to a, a sort of stable uh, um, situation obviously leave her in charge, you know, leave Lal Singh as, as a prime minister and, and Tej Singh as the commander in chief, which is what happened, in fact, you know, all these three characters retain their positions, you know, um, uh, which they had uh, before the war. Um, and uh, she hoped things would, you know, just carry on, you know, as before, obviously, you know, but, you know, accepting British, you know, um, um, you know, authority, if you like. Um, it's a bit like um, it's a bit like what happened in Bengal, for instance. You know, when the when the when the British took over after the Battle of Plassey, um, you know, the various Nawabs thought that they could handle the British. You know, um, you know, they've managed to uh, the British uh, beat uh, uh, you know the uh, the previous Nawab, but uh, you know, in, in in Plassey, the ones that came after him thought, you know, oh look, you know, we've been raised to this position, but um, we will handle it and um you know retain our independence you know and hopefully get it back uh, as well so i think that's what she was thinking as well she was thinking that you know i've managed to use the british 
Um, but, um, you know, uh, hopefully things will carry on as they were, but that, that wasn't the case. You know, the British started to sort of take over more and more as well, you know. Um, and in fact, she was sidelined almost completely, um, you know, um, after a few months. Um, Lal Singh was, you know, got rid of um, by the British. Um, the British had started to, um, you know, uh, to, um, um, to uh, dismantle the Sikh army as well. Um, so a lot of the, you know, the, the veteran troops were uh, dismissed, given their pensions, you know, that's it, you're out. So, you know, the whole sort of weakening of the state was, was, was sort of being carried out. Um, so that period between, um, you know, start of 1846, you know, when, when, when the first Anglo-Sikh war finished, to sort of mid, um, you know, 1848, so you've got about two and a half years, was a period where, you know, the British resident was, uh, you know, gaining more and more control, if you like, of the state. And um, uh, by the end of that, there was a chap called Frederick Curry, um, who'd, um, you know, there's a chap called, um, uh, you know, Henry Lawrence, uh, you know, and then John Lawrence, and you had somebody called Frederick Curry who, who'd taken over, who, who were effectively, you know, the Maharajas of, of, of Lahore now. Um, they didn't really ask the Lahore Darbar anything. Um, you know, they, they had the power to, to, to sort of run the state. Um, and um, so that was the situation. And Maharani Jindan probably realized this pretty early on. You know, um, you know, this situation's getting out of control. I've been sidelined. Um, and um, as with other states which are sort of semi-independent you know, and, and gradually losing their independence to the British, you know, as the British sort of, uh, um, you know, gain control, uh, she found out as well too late. And, um, you know, I, people like to see her as some sort of heroine, uh, you know, uh, but I think she was, um, you know, she was an ordinary person thrust into a role which she wasn't really trained for. You know, um, she was one of the, I mean, she was pretty young, um, you know, had no experience of, of, of um, you know, um, statesmanship. Um, you know, if you'd asked Ranjit Singh, you know, would Maharani Jindan be in control of the, the state at some point, you know, after his death, he, he would have been surprised, you know, because she was one of his lesser queens, if you like, the younger ones. Um, you know, he had, um, you know, other sons that were older than, you know, Dilip Singh. Um, so the chances of her actually coming to the front and the Dilip Singh, you know, being the, the Maharaja of Lahore, uh, were actually quite poor, you know, uh, during his, his lifetime. Um, but with all the assassinations and, you know, um, that happened after that, you know, these, these two... Uh, you know, mother and son came to the fore, if you like. Um, but she wasn't really, um, like I said, she wasn't really trained for the role. Um, and um, I think she was a little bit out of her depth, to be honest. And and things had gone beyond her control anyway, you know, with the, with the, the Sikh army beaten um, and the British having sort of taken control of Punjab, there was very little she could have done anyway. Um, but she um, she did raise a lot of um, you know issues with the uh, the British resident you know regarding how she was being treated. Um, but war, you'd think that 
this would have been the cause of the war. But in fact, war actually broke out um, in the deep south of the country, you know, a place called Muldan, um, where you had um, a chap called, um, you know, Divan Mulraj, who was the, the governor of the city, um, resigning. And um, a British uh, officer had gone to, to actually take control of the city. And um, he was killed by the, the garrison there, you know. <laughs> Who didn't want him to take take over, and uh, and that was a trigger for the war, effectively. So it, it came as a almost a big surprise. You know, nobody nobody anticipated war would break out, um, and it was certainly a city where there were hardly any Sikh troops as well. You know, uh, Divan Mulraj was a Hindu. Uh, it's a, a largely uh, Muslim city. Uh, you know, the garrison was largely Muslim. There's a lot of Hindus. It's about 50-50 at that, that time, you know, Multan. Um, uh, um, so you had, you know, a place where, you know, there's hardly any Sikh army there at all anyway. Um, um, but conflict broke out. Uh, the British decided to, you know, teach uh, Divan Mulraj a lesson. He was now the reluctant head of this new rebellion. You know, <laughs> he, um, you know, it, it, just like with the first war, you've got a leadership which doesn't really want to fight the British. You know, so it's a very sort of uh, uh, strange scenario. Um, but uh, anyway, he became the reluctant leader of this rebellion at Multan, and um, some Sikh troops were sent to Multan to help the British force there. You know, to to, to actually recapture the city. They rebelled. Um, you know, they thought, you know, why not? You know, this is a uh, you know, this is the ideal time to rebel as well. So um, they they were led by a chap called uh, Shir Singh. Um, so they sort of browbeat him into, um, you know, declaring war as well against the British. And of course, his uh, Shir Singh's um, uh, father, Chatur Singh, was, was uh, governor of Hazara as well, uh, province. Um, and he rebelled against the British as well, very reluctantly as well. He was actually quite a, an ill person, a sick person, you know, the uh, exactly what you don't want leading a rebellion, you know, a very, very sickly person. But he was, um, uh, this is probably another story, but he was, he was given quite a hard time by the British um, 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 officer in charge of Hazara there. So he rebelled as well. So suddenly this, this very um, odd rebellion at Multan suddenly becomes an Anglo-Sikh war. Um, so again, you know, a very sort of murky way of, of, <laughs> of um, you know, um, a war starting, uh, just like the first one. That's amazing. And so just to clarify, technically the second Anglo-Sikh war is an accident because like, so, because from what you said, the one Mularaj resigns and it's because his soldiers kill the British guy who turns up that everything sparked off. So technically, I know it's not an accident in like the truest sense, but there wasn't ever really an intention for the second Anglo sequel. Like it just almost occurs with a flick of, well, with Matey being murdered, but almost with the flick of a switch. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nobody had actually planned to, to, to fight a war. Uh, and in fact, you know, technically, um, it can't really be considered a, an Anglo Sikh war anyway. Uh, simply because Multan was part of part of Punjab. And um, so it was 
technically, you know, Sikh territory. Um, so there was no invasion of, you know, British territory. Divan Mularaj, again, had not declared war against the British. <laughs> um, so he was technically rebelling against, you know, the Lahore state, not, not against the British. Um, so, you know, there was this sort of toing to and froing in, in, you know, British high circles as to, you know, is this really an Anglo-Sikh war um, or is this just uh, a rebellion within, you know, the Lahore state? Um, but of course, they, you know, they decided to take advantage of that. And, um, you know, it became, uh, um, you know, a declaration of war against, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the Punjab. But strangely enough, the the Lahore Darbar, the, the Sikh government, was actually on the side of the British, you know, during this war, um, believe it or not. So they actually supplied, uh, you know, the British with, uh, I can't remember how many thousands of camels and, you know, uh, and, and uh, you know, hackeries and carts to transport munitions and what have you, uh, because they saw Mulraj and, and Sher Singh as uh, rebels, if you like. Um, and they were perfectly happy to work underneath the British. Um, so, you know, in this war, as with the first one, I guess, the, you know, the, 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 the Lahore government was actually um, acting against its own army. Insane. Insane. Yeah. I absolutely <laughs> love these conversations because I get to learn, and obviously everyone listening as well gets to learn so much in such a short space of time. So, no, that I really, really appreciate Um that answer because it's it's cleared up a lot of um questions that i had and provides a lot of context without having to kind of trawl through loads of books so no thank you a lot for that um just sticking then with the second the second anglo sequel although strictly that isn't really um the best term to use so there are four main engagements from what um i could gather so there's ramnagar sadalpur uh, which are apparently close and inconclusive contests. Um, and then there's Jillianwala and Gujarat, which are said to be far more um, fiercely contested and, and kind of the decisive battles um, in this second leg. So could you just explain a little bit about these different engagements and what occurs um, and kind of like... Uh, how do they um like kind of reach their conclusion like what is the what is the change that's kind of um achieved after this set of battles okay well once you had the outbreak of war at um, um at muldan um Sher Singh managed to sort of collect what he could um uh, you know of the sikh army um obviously it'd been um you know greatly reduced by the british um, so, but what he had, he managed to accumulate them. Um, and he also, you know, made a call to all the, the veterans that, that sort of, uh, retired, you know, so you had a lot of, uh, um, you know, older, but more experienced soldiers, um, joining his force as well and anybody else he could, you know, uh, gather as well. Now he was very much against, up against it, you know, um, in terms of, in terms of financing the war. Uh, he was not getting any money from, you know, the Lahore Treasury uh, because that's that's controlled by the British. You know, uh, Lahore was under uh, British British, you know, possession, British control. Um, so he had to sort of 
finance the war by himself. Um, so, you know, he was pretty much against it, up against it, you know, in terms of, you know, um, of financing it. In terms of um, artillery, um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, um, a lot of the Sikh guns had been um, confiscated by the British after the first war and, and certainly all the heavy ones, you know, the, there might have been a few left, but most of the heavy guns had been uh, confiscated. So he was up against it in terms of, you know, having the firepower as well. And um, in terms of logistics as well, you know, he was um, up against it simply because the Lahore uh, government is actually, you know, actively working with the British as well. So it's a very difficult situation. But what he decided to do was um, set up camp um, uh, along the um, uh, uh, the um, um, the river. And um, sorry, which one was it? It's um, uh, along the uh, uh, Jalem River. Yeah. Um, so it's um, sorry. Uh, what was the other river? <laughs> I've forgotten the one that's just east of uh, Jalem. Uh, totally slipped my mind. But he, he formed the Sikh army next to the river, um, and with the idea of contesting, uh, you know, with, with the idea of stopping the British from, um, you know, managing to cross the river, if you like. Um, so it was a good position, um, but the British um, managed to sort of bypass his position um, and uh, cross the river anyway. But before they managed to cross the river. There was a short skirmish at Ramnagar, um, which uh, which was inconclusive. You know, um, uh, the, the British lost a couple of guns. Um, you know, as they as they advanced towards the river, um, but it was a cavalry conflict, um, and uh, they um, they they actually got lured into the river, um, and uh, they had. Uh, a reasonable number of casualties, which uh, a lot of people criticised Goff for. Uh, Goff, who was the uh, British commander in chief, so um, it was a, you know, it was a, an advantage to the Sikhs, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a conclusive battle in any way. Uh, and the same with Sadalpur as well. That was a, a rearguard action. Once the British had crossed the river, um, you know, he, um, Sher Singh sent a force to Sadalpur uh, to. To, to, to sort of uh, protect his rear, if you like, while he, um, you know, uh, retreated to Shiliangwala. So again, a very um, um, small conflict, uh, not, not, you know, um, not particularly um, important in any way. Um, but what that meant was that the, the two armies were now facing each other at Shiliangwala. And, um, and that's the way they sat for a number of weeks, actually, until the British commander decided to attack. Um, he was actually held back by the British Governor General, who was a little bit apprehensive, you know, because Chiliola is quite a distance away from Delhi, you know, so the British supply lines were actually quite long. And he didn't want Gough to be lured, you know, further and further west, because um, uh, that would have meant trouble, you know, in terms of supplying his force. So uh, he was held back for a bit. But eventually, you know, the two the two um, the two armies clashed, and um, it was a bit of a surprise. You know, Goff decided to attack when I think it was about four p.m. at night. You know, and uh, this was in December, uh, sorry, uh, January, um, when 
obviously nights are very, you know, uh, days are very short. And uh, so as soon as they were attacking, you know, you had night, night falling. Uh, so it was a very confused battle. Uh, but what happened was that pretty much half the British force was repelled quite badly. Um, and with the, the other half, you know, just managing to hold their um, line, if you like, or having some success. But um, um, with the fall of night, it, you know, the whole sort of battle is taking place in, in a jungle. Um, as you can imagine, there was a huge amount of confusion. You know, um, nobody knows what's going on. Um, and uh, if Sher Singh had decided to, you know, advance at this point, which he didn't, he was actually a very cautious sort of person. Um, as with all Anglo-Sikh battles, the Sikh army always fights on the defensive. Um, similarly at Chilliawala, you know, they stayed in their line. Uh, they did not take advantage of the, um, you know, the, the chance that they had. Um, and, uh, you know, the confused sort of uh, situation that the British found themselves in um, could have been, you know, it could have turned into a disaster, effectively, if, if the Sikh army had uh, advanced. Uh, but they didn't. And, uh, you know, the British sort of recovered uh, the following day and um, found that, uh, you know, that actually lost quite a, you know, quite a high number of casualties. So, um, but they managed to capture a few Sikh guns. Um, so they declared it a victory, um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's a sort of a draw. I would consider it a draw, actually. Um, although, as with Feroz Shah, you know, if the Sikh army had attacked, then it would have been very different. But in terms of the actual result, it was a draw. Um, now, Sher Singh made the mistake after Chilinwala of deciding to march towards uh, Lahore. And uh, I think he wanted to, to actually capture, um, you know, uh, Lahore itself, uh, which was a mistake. He had a very good position at Shilianwala and he should have actually stayed there. Um, but what it meant was that he had to uh, advance back uh, eastwards and territory, which was absolutely plain, you know, um, and that gave the British a huge advantage, you know, because they had um, a huge advantage in cavalry and uh, artillery as well. Um, and Battle of Gujarat was actually a, pretty much a, a sort of walkover for the British. Um, you know, with, with very few casualties, they managed to sort of almost bomb the sea line into, you know, into oblivion. Uh, in fact, it's called the Battle of the Guns um, uh, for very good reason, because it was almost entirely um, an artillery affair. And, um, you know, Goff let the, uh, he'd learned his lessons at Chilianwala, you know, about a, a full frontal attack. And he let his guns do the work in this battle. Um, and they literally just bombed the, you know, the sea line, um, you know, uh, out of existence. Uh, Sher Singh never had the artillery, uh, as we, you know, we've talked about earlier, to, to actually compete with the, the British guns. Um, so um, that was a big mistake. He should never have, you know, um, offered battle at this position. Uh, and, and it was a disaster. And uh, um, after Gujarat, the, the Sikh army attempted to um, retreat back, you know, back across the Indus River, you know, going, going further and further west. Um, 
but unfortunately they couldn't do so for a number of reasons and uh, so you know um, a few weeks after uh, Gujarat they um, you know you, you had the surrender of the Sikh army taking place and um, that was it really um, that was the end of the conflict um, and um, followed by you know the annexation of the Punjab just then kind of wrapping up there's two questions that um, I'd love to get your input on so the first one is almost just wrapping up all the loose ends so we've obviously discussed that the fate of Punjab is it gets annexed and we all kind of know what happens from that point onwards it becomes part of the empire and everything else that goes with that what is the fate and, and we've also discussed about how the army is basically they surrender and everyone's kind of disbanded along with the annexation um what happens to some of the other kind of key players that we've spoken about? So Lal Singh, Tej Singh, uh, the Dogra brothers. Um, I'm a, I think the one Muraj is executed by the British, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but like just in terms of these kind of key characters that we've discussed um, kind of over the last couple of hours, what happens to them when annexation takes place or where are they? Uh, perhaps is the best question. Yeah, it's quite strange. None of them really lasted very long, uh, Amar. Um, uh, Diwan Mulraj, he um, he was actually um, um, he was actually uh, uh, imprisoned um, in uh, Calcutta for a while, and um, he uh, suffered a uh, you know he, he, his health deteriorated pretty badly, um, you know during this incarceration. And um, he passed away, um, you know, a few years after uh, after the war. Um, so he didn't really last very long. Um, and it was the same with, um, you know, Gulab Singh, uh, you know, ruler of Kashmir. Um, he actually um, died as the uh, in eighteen fifty seven. You know, as the uh, mutiny was taking place, you know, in in India. Um, so he just lasted another eight years as well. Um, Lal Singh, he, um, he, as we talked about earlier, he was actually overthrown from his position by the British, uh, you know, as, as prime minister. Um, he retired to Agra and um, he um, just spent his time really just in, in retirement doing nothing. You know, I think he went to Dehradun after that as well. Um, but he was a rich man. You know, he, uh, he had a comfortable living, um, never took part in politics again and, and wasn't allowed to anyway, um, you know, to, to sort of dabble in these things. And um, I'm not sure when he died, actually. I'm not sure anyone knows when he died, but he, he just sort of sank into obscurity, you know, um, um, just like where he came from. <laughs> um, so all these characters, uh, Tej Singh, he, um, he was actually very pro-British, um, you know, as, as, as in the Anglo-Sikh Wars. He actually actively helped the British during the Second Anglo-Sikh War. And he actually uh, volunteered um, um, to, um, uh, to help uh, recruit troops during, you know, the, the mutiny, 1857 as well. So eight years after that, um, you know, he was made the uh, Raja of, uh, um, I can't remember his place now. Um, but he was he was honoured quite quite heavily by the British, you know, for his for his assistance. And um, I remember reading he um, he wanted his jagirs and things to you know pass on to his son, but I, I'm not sure the British were too keen on that. Um, 
And of course, you had Ronnie Jindan, who's um, again, she passed away very, you know, at quite an early age as well. So, you know, it's quite a strange thing, but a lot of these characters didn't, didn't really, you know, survive into the 1870s or 1880s. You know, it's, um, it's quite a strange event. But we do have some um, images of some of these guys. I mean, obviously, Maharani Jindan, there's, a, there's that famous portrait um, of her. Um, there is a, a picture of Lal Singh that's, that, that's been doing the rounds, you know, um, I, I can't remember the name of the collector now, it's Tour, isn't it? He's, he, he owns that picture of Lal Singh, but there's one of, uh, um, there's one of um, uh, Mulraj as well, yeah. Unfortunately, we, th there was a picture of Sher Singh, you know, who, who led the um, Sikh army. Uh, during the Second Anglo-Sikh War, but it's missing. You know, it, it, there, there used to be one in the National Army Museum, but the album that it, it should have been in, um, it, it's disappeared. Yeah, these, these pictures were taken when they were in uh, captivity in Lahore. You know, after the, the, the Second Anglo-Sikh War, Maul Rajas brought into Lahore, same as, same as uh, Sher Singh and Chatur Singh, his father, um, and they were kept in, uh, you know, the Lahore Fortress. And um, the photographer uh, wanted to take a lot of pictures of these guys, um, but the the uh, the resident, you know, the British resident in, in Lahore, <laughs> didn't want the the prisoners bothered, you know, in in quotes. Um, so he sort of uh, stopped, um, you know, the photographer from taking more pictures. I've forgotten the name of the photographer now. Um, I think it was John McCosh. But yeah, I'm that's not... it, McCosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah McCosh wasn't allowed to um take any more pictures so this picture of Mulraj and and the missing one of uh, you know uh, Sher Singh were probably taken without the you know authority of, of uh, without the go-ahead from the uh, the resident so it's <laughs> a nice little story there yeah yeah my last question and this is almost a question that opens up an entire another podcast episode which I'm sure we'll do in the near future which is Considering the Anglo, and this is something that comes up time and again, which is considering how close the Anglo-Sikh wars are to the mutiny. Like, and again, this is just coming from like the gross popular narrative, which is, it's almost like because they're so close together, there's almost a shock at the fact that the Sikhs, quote unquote, the Sikhs don't kind of en masse take part in the mutiny. And in fact, they're almost used or they're almost part they're not almost they are part of the british machinery which helps to suppress the mutiny how like how is it achieved like how does punjab go from being annexed in 48 49 to then or not even a decade later just refusing to engage not refusing but just kind of like simplifying it almost refusing to engage in toppling the same entity that had annexed it. What what is going on in the background to achieve that? Well, I I think you've got to remember that um, you know the Sikh soldiers um, were were um, were soldiers, you know, uh, by trade, um, and they needed you know one of the the great stories I find you know after. Uh, you know, the end of the Second Anglo-Sikh War is, you know, after the surrender, at, uh, uh, after the uh, Sikh army surrenders, is that a lot of the Sikh soldiers actually approached the, uh, you know, the British officers, you know, asking for jobs in the East India Company's forces. 
you know, so, you know, they did not want to go back to, you know, the, the pens and, uh, you know, uh, back to doing kitty, you know, uh, that's not what they're there for. They're professional soldiers. So they need, you know, they need a, a, an army that they can serve with. So, um, so there, there was always this um, um, sort of um, aspiration to, to, to rejoin an army, if you like. Um, I think the most important thing to remember is that there was a lot of dislike of the the sepoys that the, the British used, um, you know, in, in the Punjab. Um, they were very sort of overbearing. They made a nuisance of themselves. Um, you know, they, um, you know, they taunted the population. They taunted the Sikh soldiers, you know, where they went. During that, from 1849 to 57, that's eight years, um, you know, they were very heavily disliked. Um, not by just, you know, the veteran Sikh soldiers, but by the population as a whole. Um, and not just the population of Punjab as a whole, but all the border areas as well. So all the Pathans and, you know, all the uh, trans-Indus region, um, you know, those, those tribal uh, people, uh, you know, Muslim tribes and uh, what have you, they had an absolute dislike of these, uh, you know, what they call Purbias, you know, they called them Easterners. Um, uh, so they were very unpopular. So when the mutiny broke out, there was hardly any chance of, you know, these um, veteran Sikh soldiers wanting to, you know, ally themselves with uh, these Burbias, you know, or, or Easterners. Um, so, so there was that. Um, the other thing was that there was simply no leadership um, that could have, you know, inspired uh, you know, the Punjabis to, to sort of um, um, to, to, to rise up, if you like. At that stage, you know, Maharani Jindan had gone, um, you know, Maharaja Dalip Singh was not even in the Punjab, you know, it was in, it was, it was in, the, uh, in England. Um, there simply was no one there to, to sort of, uh, you know, uh, take advantage of the situation. Um, the British were very apprehensive about the Punjab. Um, you know, it took them um, around about three months to organize an invasion of, you know, a, 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 and, and successfully attack and capture, re, a recapture Delhi. Um, during those three months, it could have gone either way in the Punjab because they knew that people hadn't forgotten the, you know, the Anglo-Sikh wars. They hadn't forgotten that they were independent. Um, so, the, you know, if, if the situation had arose, you know, if the, if the right leader had arose, it could very easily have gone against the British, um, but uh, a good salary with the British, you know, um, you know that was that was a lure um, that the the sepoys couldn't offer. You know, um, you know they could not offer any money. Um, they weren't liked, uh, and importantly, you know, it wouldn't have resulted in you know. An independence for Punjab again, anyway, because they were fighting, you know, on behalf of, um, you know, the um, uh, the Mughal emperor, uh, you know, Badr Shah. Um, so really, um, even if they'd managed to help the sepoys, even if the uprising had, had had been successful, the mutiny had been successful, it wouldn't have um, there wouldn't have been anything in it for Punjabis in general. You know, it would have meant, you know, the re-establishment of, of some sort of Mughal, Mughal, Mughal empire. So th th there's quite a lot of other reasons for it as well, but 
Um, yeah, I, I mentioned earlier, I'm writing a book on, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, the mutiny in the Punjab in 1857. So I'll come up, you know, I'll, I'll elaborate on those um, quite heavily. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting story, uh, <laughs> what happened in the Punjab. Um, and uh, I can well imagine. And again, that's also why I thought it'd be a, a good place to ask this question right at the end, because um, it obviously then opens up the opportunity to do a, another episode kind of just related to, to, to what's going on in relation to the mutiny. But I just thought, considering how close the two events are, um, it'd be worth asking you about it um, now as well. Um, I just wanted to check, I've gone through all of the questions that I wanted to, to, to go over. I just wanted to check, is there anything that you wanted to um, kind of add in or anything that we've missed um, just before we kind of wrap up? Because just like to double check. Uh, no, not really. I think we've we've covered everything uh, pretty well, uh, Amr. So yeah. <laughs> appreciate yeah. your questions, and uh, you know these things you can you can you know just keep talking about them for you know hours and days. You know each yeah. each question that you've posed, uh, we can literally do you know a podcast on you know uh, <laughs> each battle. You could you know you could talk about it for hours, but um, no, it's great. You know it's. Uh, good to have this conversation with you and hopefully we've you know we've made it a little bit easier for yeah. anyone who's not you know too uh too up on these things to uh um you know to, to sort of understand what went on in the Punjab during that period no thank you thank you so much all right in that case I will leave it to the rest of the evening um thank you so much for today really really have enjoyed it um I will obviously be in touch soon just to kind of keep you up to date with with what's going on with this um episode um but yeah, otherwise than that, I will uh, let you get on with your uh, evening. <laughs>